welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on January 29th, Lord's Day Service. He went up into a mountain. When he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let us pray. Father, thank you for teaching, for guiding, and leading us in your path. May we receive your words with glad hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Why do we laugh at jokes? Most jokes are very short stories, miniature stories. And like all stories, they have characters, a setting, and then a punchline. That is a twist at the end that you're not expecting. Maybe it's wordplay. Maybe it's simple misunderstanding. But when I ask you the question, you probably all remember at least one joke that you've heard that really got to you. The best jokes create some tension in the middle just before resolving that tension in an unexpected way. You usually know you've told a joke well when the person or the audience laughs. The best jokes produce a ray of joy, even if it's just for a split second. Jesus' opening words in the Sermon on the Mount, though they're not really a joke, to many at the time hearing it, they sound absurd. They don't sound like what they were expecting. It did have, there was a twist in his words, but it was not a twist that produced humor in them. Likely for some, it produced frustration. The people in the audience had been waiting. They'd waited for a long time. They were expecting deliverance from oppression. We don't know what that's like here. We don't have any direct relationship. If you've lived in the United States for a long time, we don't have a relationship with with rulers who are really oppressive. Yes, we complain because we have speed limits and and, and, and really harsh things like, you know, you can only go again so fast in a place, or you have to build your house to a certain code, and we say, oppression, that's actually not real oppression. The Jews in the first century understood oppression. Generations had seen pagans residing in God's land, the land that was promised to his people. And the people that Jesus was speaking to, they were closer in history to Moses and the Exodus than we are to them. 
They fully expected the Messiah to come and to lead, the, to lead angelic powers and annihilate the foreign occupiers and bring in the golden era, the millennium. That was their expectation. And they had seen Jesus. You can read prior to Matthew 5, Jesus was performing miracles. He was teaching about the kingdom. So you know the anticipation was there. It was a ripe time. When you read the literature of the time, what there is, you see most, most of the people in the Jewish system, you either had men who were totally complicit with Rome or you had strong right-wing zealots. The people who were a part of the paramilitary closet groups who they said, when he comes and the angelic powers are coming, we're going to be right behind him. We're going we're to be the cleanup act. Any, Rome, any Romans that get left, we'll, we'll deal with them. Some things never change. But if you were in the middle, if, if you weren't a part of that group, or one of those two groups, well, you're just kind of stuck. You don't have much of a voice. The people were expecting this miracle-performing rabbi, this greater-than-Solomon philosopher and future king, when he ascended the mountain, they understood the, 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 the mosaic similarities. They expected a man to teach them the meaning of life, the meaning of the law, and the victory of God's kingdom. That is, they expected their already existing beliefs to be reinforced. What they heard was not a joke, but neither did it fit with their expectations. I heard one pastor recently call this teaching uh, aporia. Aporia is a method of discourse, very common in ancient times, where one presents a series of disquieting teachings or questions from which there's no apparent Escape. This was a common method of Socrates. If you read the, the Socratic dialogues, someone would come to Socrates and they would ask him a question. And then Socrates would ask the person questions in response. Now, many of you, if you've ever had that happen to you, you know it's not what you want. No, when I ask you a question, give me a straight answer. We're pragmatic Americans, okay? We say, D -d don't, don't quibble, don't ask me a bunch of things. Well, that's exactly what Socrates would do. He would ask questions, and then by the time you're finished, he would have the person intellectually wrapped up in a pretzel, like a pretzel, not in a pretzel, like a pretzel. <laughs> those, those words mean something. But Jesus would do the same thing. This, J Jesus' words here and aporia in general is like Brazilian jiu-jitsu for the soul. Where, where Jesus would take the concrete expectations of the people and present them in an unexpected angle and use their own strength against them to create an impasse. You see, Jesus did not come to make us who we want to be. 
Never has. That was never the purpose. If you read Scripture, whenever you read Scripture, whenever you sit down to teaching, if you come and if you read only to reinforce what you're already doing, you're missing the point. Totally missing the point. That, 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 that's not the reason why we come to Scripture. If you want to have your own views and who you are reinforced, you need to change your morning devotion, change your morning devotion to how to be the best person you already are or self-esteem digest or something like that. If that's what you're going for. But I hope you're not. Jesus disrupts in a good way. He begins the sermon with the word blessed or the Greek word makarios. We have no equivalent English word because it combines peace, prosperity, joy, and contentment. The closest word we have, according at least to commentator uh, Jonathan Pennington, is the word flourishing. It includes having God's favor. The word blessed includes having God's favor, the joy of the new heavens and the new earth or the, uh, the resurrected state, and also maturity in virtue. Jesus' words here, is not, it's not the first time that the word blessed in this particular way is used. We see it commonly in the Old Testament wisdom literature. For example, Psalm 1, very first verse. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And, and it continues. So what is that blessed man? He doesn't do these things, but his delight is in thee. Law of the Lord. And in that law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water whose fruit will bring forth in its season. So what's the picture? Flourishing. Then you go to Psalm 2, though. And he again, he, he uses the word also in Psalm 2. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish from the way. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. We read in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 32, and I'm just giving you a snapshot. These are not the only places. But in Proverbs 8, 32, Lady Wisdom is speaking here, and she says, Blessed are those who keep my ways. So when, when you take a survey of, of this word, how it's used in the, in the Old Testament, the, this blessing or this flourishing comes to those whose trust is in the Lord, and who pursue the wise path, the path of wisdom. Now, interestingly, I would also add it's used in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 32, when Isaiah presents what the kingdom of God will look like. He says you'll pour, that God will pour water out on the wilderness and it will become a fruitful field. And the very last verse of Isaiah 32, he, just, he uses that word blessed, in its Hebrew form, to describe the peace that will be there, that will arrive in the coming kingdom. So who wouldn't want this favor? Who would not want this blessing of God on himself and his family? Well, there are plenty of people who don't want it. Because the way is hard. 
It doesn't lend itself to quick fixes. When you live in an age of microwaves, of jets, of Zoom meetings, the very word does not imply patience. And I'm not saying it's wrong to use, okay? So, so don't, don't misunderstand. It's, it's not bad. But when, when you live in a time like this, it's much harder to hear that God's kingdom comes with all the rapidity of a growing tree. Have you ever watched a tree grow? How long does that take? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a common statement, at least it was when I was growing up. If you didn't want to do something, you say, would you like to do this? No, I'd rather watch the grass grow. You might as well say, I'd rather watch the kingdom of God comes in because the speed is about the same. Or it's harder to hear this. It's harder to hear that becoming virtuous can't be scheduled like some surgery. You want to become virtuous? Oh, well, I'll do it on this day at such and such a time with this preacher or this teacher. It's not like having your appendix out. It's slow. And not only is it slow in you, which it's a lot easier for me to, to, to be patient with myself about how fast I'm growing, it's a lot harder when we're waiting for somebody else to become more spiritual. I, you know, I'm pretty satisfied with my growth. You uh, really got to pick it up a little bit. This is the kingdom of God come to earth, brothers and sisters, and it's, it takes a while. When you have the strongest military in the world, it's hard to understand how losing your life is the only way to save it. We don't know what it's like to lose The ancient Jews, they knew what it was like to lose. They had lost a lot. They had been under the foot of Rome for quite a while. So why would they embrace this little way when you can pursue the easier path to domination? Not that there was, not, not that there was some clear way for them to become the dominant force in their region, but that's... The, the promise of, yes, God's going to come and, and the Messiah is going to let me stomp your face to His glory. That was a wonderful idea. That type of domination held sway. But domination is not the path. This is the question, that exact question, why would you go the, the, the harder more difficult and slower way when you can take the quicker path. That was the question given to Jesus on the Mount of Temptation. That was it. You can have everything, Jesus, if you will bow down, Satan said, and worship me. No death, no difficulty, just bow down and worship. And what did he say? No. Don't tempt the Lord your God. Jesus chose the more difficult path of patience, humility, and blessing. But in these Beatitudes, 
we find not only the path to personal virtue, but again, it's, we find the path to the establishment of God's very kingdom in the world. So he begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let's change this to something we, we might relate to a little bit more. Blessed are the beggars. Why the emphasis on this? Why not something like, blessed are the pious? Blessed are the, the righteous. Now, and all those are great. Piety is great. Righteousness is great. But Jesus says, blessed are the, the, the beggars. Why is he emphasizing the poverty of soul? You say, we don't believe in that. It leads to morbid introspection. If Jesus taught it, it's not going to lead to morbid introspection. So you don't have to worry about that. So we can embrace this first beatitude with a, with a clean conscience. The one, though, who is poor in spirit is not one who is always staring at the recesses of his dark heart. Because, yes, it's dark down there. Don't do that. The one who is poor in spirit understands that we're not enslaved to bootstrap theology. Where you pick yourself up when you have a bad day, you do better things, you do several more good things, and then you look in the mirror and you can receive the self-adulation you so richly deserve. That's not being poor in spirit. There is no place for pride in the Christian life. And that includes pride in even the good things you have. So if you, if you take pride in your Christian worldview or your theology, your theological background, your denomination, or your fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is, we have good things what we can be grateful for. But the line from gratitude to pride can be very tough. Sometimes. Poverty of spirit knows that everything we have, everything I have, everything you have is from God. The marks of this blessed beggar, the, the, the mark Jesus gives here is that this person who inherits the kingdom of heaven, well, this person is grateful. There's gratitude for God's blessings. He or she does not look down on himself, does not look down on others. Yes, sometimes we can be impatient with ourselves. We know this. We can become very discouraged because you blow it. And, you, and what do we do when we become impatient? with ourselves. It, it, it's not that, we're, that I'm saying you need better self-esteem. That's not the message, okay? But God takes you where you are and He doesn't say, you're just, you're just a piece of work. Why, why are you still back there? I quit with you. I'm done. He doesn't do that. He picks you up and dusts you off and continues leading you towards righteousness. That's what He does. So when you are tempted to say, I, I, I quit, no, God loves you too much for that. 
Not an option. Or when you're tempted to look down on others because you see that someone else is less mature, who is someone else is different, someone else does not hold to the things you hold to, or even those who are outside of the faith. We, we cannot despise a person because they're not who I am or not who you are. This blessed beggar does not think less of himself, but thinks of himself less. And that is the person who inherits the kingdom. Then Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, promising them comfort. The one whose conscience is tender, who is affected by the darkness and destruction of sin. I don't mean paralyzed by it, but who is affected by it, who grieves with those who grieve and who doesn't hide behind hardness and bitterness amidst life's evils. This is the person who will be comforted. Oh my goodness. Preacher, you're telling me I ought to be like a child. Well, in the right way. The person who mourns is one who is moved because of sin and its consequences. So it's not only that, that we should abstain from sin, which we should, but it means not becoming calloused to the sins around us. It means as parents protecting our children from the things that would deaden their souls to the beauty of God's Word. We are largely a people hardened to sin. Well, you say, look, if I went around with, with this vulnerability you're talking about, do you realize how, how easily it would be, how easy it'd be to hurt me? We can't do that. Reality's hard, so we got to just learn to deal with it. Well, yes, we learn to deal with it, but that does not mean that we say, oh, reality's hard, I'll be harder. I'll be tougher. I'll be meaner. Because that's what a good Christian should be. No. Do we need more reality around us? Well, yes, but reality is not another, word, another term for worldliness. And sometimes we think that. We think, look, it's good that I'm watching this movie because it's helping me to understand the way the world really is. Nowhere in Holy Scripture do we see anything that tells us, immerse yourself in the bad parts of the world so you can understand where they're coming from. So you can relate to them. Now, we do need reality, but we need the reality of what, is, what God has called good. We need real goodness and real beauty. We need those types of things that are real around us. Will you be hurt if you live in a way that, that you, where you are vulnerable? Yes. And that's part of the point. Jesus is saying, you will be hurt. But he doesn't stop there. 
He doesn't say be a doormat. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's saying, yes, when you live this way, when you live in such a way that you are tender to, the, to sin, when you protect, try to protect yourself and your household from this, when you're willing to grieve with those who grieve, yes, you will be hurt, but you will also be comforted, not just by people. You'll be comforted by the Lord God Himself. The Spirit will be with you in a greater way than if you try to protect yourself through bitterness. So yes, maintain a tender conscience. There will be times when you will face sadness and you'll be moved to mourning. But He promises that comfort will come and you'll, He will enable you to get up and to do it all over again. Then He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Many rightly emphasize that word meekness means power under control. The picture is of a horse who is bridled. So we say, yes, see, that word, Jesus used that word, which means power is good as long as it is under control. And then it's not very far with our human minds from that to benevolent dictatorship where I am the dictator, but I'm under the Holy Spirit's control, and so I'm a good dictator to all the people who are under me. At least that's how it works in here, between these ears. That's, that's what we, and that's what many think of when we think of meekness. Because we know, again, Jesus is not saying you all can never protect yourself. No, this is not a pacifistic teaching. That's not the point either. You see, this verse, verse 5, is a summary of Psalm 37. So you want to know what Jesus is talking about? Read Psalm 37, whose emphasis is on those who have less power. He says multiple times in Psalm 37 that the meek will inherit the earth. Those who have less power than their overlords, but those with less power don't rise up in a revolutionary way and just fight solely for their rights. They patiently trust the Lord. That's what you see in Psalm 37 over and over again. You trust in the Lord. Wait patiently on the Lord. That's also the, the, that chapter of Psalm 37 is where we read the verse that is the life verse of many. Delight yourselves in the Lord and He'll give you whatever you want whenever you want. That's actually not the rest of the verse. Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. That's spoken to a people who are under great burdens. But for the, for the people in Jesus' day, again, there was a strong desire to, to rise up against Rome. But not only is personal revolutionary action usually ignorant, foolish, it also contradicts the work of the kingdom. Meekness means resisting the temptation to lash out, even though you could even though you, you see and understand why you have a good reason to do so. 
It means submitting to the authorities God places over you, even though they may be unjust in the way they exercise it. And again, if you're hearing this, there's undoubtedly part of you, part of you is saying, do you realize what you're saying? Do you realize what they're going to do? They being anyone that doesn't like me. If I'm meek, if my power is harnessed this way, I'm going to just be plastered. The people, who, the people who are meek don't stand a chance in this world. It's like sending the hens to the fox den. Well, not exactly. Jesus has a different metaphor. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So it's almost as bad. Would you rather be a hen going to the fox den or a sheep going to the wolf pen? It's all, the, it's all the same. The weak are going to the place of the strong, and Jesus said, I'm sending you there. But he didn't send us to anything that he didn't go to himself. He leads this path. He shows us how to do this. These commands, if you hear them a certain way, they could sound escapist. But this is where the aporia comes in. Those who practice these things... Jesus says they are comforted. They inherit God's kingdom. And not just the kingdom, they inherit the earth as well. This is not escapist. This is godly dominion. But dominion does not look the way we humans expect. Dominion is not domination. And this, brothers and sisters, is how God's grace comes into the world. How His kingdom expands and how we become like Him. It's all contained in the promised blessings that comes to spiritual beggars. Those who have strong and tender hearts. And they receive whatever comes to them with joyful submission. The way to flourishing, Jesus prescribes, may sound like a joke. And in a way, it is. It has a story and characters. But Jesus came and disrupted the plots of the principalities and powers, dislodging their hold on us. He did it not through the normal way to power and control, but by love and sacrifice. And while a degree of tension remains in our story, He taught us the path to blessing. And we can be sure that in time all will be well and all manner of things will be well. And the flame of joy at the end of this divine comedy will not just be a temporary flash that goes away, but it will be a flame that expands and lasts forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for showing us the way. And though it is not a way we understand always, we submit ourselves to it and ask that you would guide us and strengthen us to walk this way. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening.
If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com.